My name is Joe Batanz, and welcome to Bookish, a podcast on which Sonia Walger talks to interesting people about the five books that have shaped them most. Sonia Walger is an accomplished actress who has appeared in some of the most influential works of television and theater this century thus far. On the stage, Sonia performed in the original Broadway production of Frost Nixon as David Frost's girlfriend, Charlotte Cushing. On television, Sonia made her American debut on the HBO series The Mind of the Married Man. She then went on to appear in a wide range of television projects such as Parenthood, In Treatment, Terminator of the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and the HBO series Tell Me You Love Me. She earned the adoration of obsessed fans of the ABC drama series Lost when she performed the recurring role of Penny, and most recently spent two seasons starring on the Shondaland show The Catch. She is married to writer-producer Davey Holmes, with whom she has two beautiful children. It's been my pleasure to work with her on this project, and we thought of no better way to conclude this season than by turning the tables on Sonia and subjecting her to the very questions she asked of her guests. Uh, I was like, I don't even know um, why I was in a, in a volcano to begin with. Anyway, hi, Sonia. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm nervous. I'm I'm like stupid nervous about doing my own podcast, so that's. Good. I know. I was gonna say, welcome, to, <laughs> welcome to your podcast. Welcome to Bookish. Yeah. Well, you know what's so funny is a lot of your guests have said that they're nervous, and now the shoes and yet, why are you nervous? You already know what you're gonna say. I know, and I even know the whole thing. I just don't know what you're gonna say. I'm you know, scurrying <laughs> around the house trying to find my books, and then I was like, "What? What am I even doing? It's not that kind of podcast. I don't need my books. I, I know, just need to talk about why I." like them I, yeah. I, 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 had, I had to give myself the talk that yeah. was what I had to do this is going to be like your oral exams when you were at uh, really did you go to Oxford or, or Cambridge I can't remember I went to Oxford yeah so when you're I was like your oral exam what do they call them do they call them oral exams they call them vivas viva voce and and uh, and I did not have one but those were those were an option if there was some sort of mitigating circumstance you could do a viva which sounded just terrible to me but it was basically where you just talked talked the equivalent of an exam out loud for maybe an hour just terrible idea we have a mutual friend who went to trinity and one of um you know i'm very very proper here trinity college you know in england (laughs) and uh one of the things he told us is that you know there's an old rule where that you have a right during an exam if you wear spurs to ask for a plate of cheese Can we say who the mutual friend is since he was a guest on the show? Sure, go ahead. We're allowed to acknowledge the presence of Chris White on this show. Chris White, what? If you wear spurs, you get a plate of cheese? Yeah. That is some Cambridge shit, man. That does not play at Oxford, I can tell you. Okay, so you guys don't have any sort of weird rules like that or anything? Yeah, or... no, there was some really arcane stuff. So I went to Christchurch at Oxford, which is a really, really old, old one of the... Co- not that there are particularly any new... A new thing at Oxford means it was built in 1650. But yeah. anyway, Christchurch was a super old one. And there was a weird weird thing whereby if you were a scholar and got a scholarship which I did but it didn't mean much financially it was more a sort of nominal thing yeah uh, when you were a scholar you got to wear a a long gown not one of the little short ones because mm-hmm. who who wants a short gown not only did you get to wear a long gown but you officially got given a cow in Christchurch <laughs> meadow exactly. and, w- and were entitled to the cream that it gave um so, so not far off spurs and a plate of cheese, but um, not not quite the same either. <laughs> but did you ever ask for the cream from your cow? No, I really should have done. I, not that's a waste. That's a total waste. But that's it? what I told Chris. Is I like, did you ever wear the spurs? And he said, No. Why? Why would I do that? I didn't want cheese. And I was like, Oh, I would have been wearing spurs every all day. the time. Yeah, it would have been like a, like a, a Western saloon when when. They're like, they would have heard me coming. Joe, I want to see you in Spurs so bad. I really do. Uh, so does half of gay America. Now, let, me ask, <laughs> let me ask you this question. What? Because you know what's so funny? I'm always fascinated when, especially creative people, tell me, like you and I talked about this at a mutual friend's uh, party that you wanted to do this podcast. I'm always mm. fascinated when things go from the germ of an idea mm. to actual fruition and there's a finished product so what made you even want to do a podcast because you are so much classier than the world of podcasting (laughs) and and why this podcast well first of all i would rapidly disagree i think podcasting is 
just phenomenal. I have been a passionate listener of podcasts for long, long before they were fashionable. I really was. I, I was... I was the idiot sitting in the driveway waiting for this American life to roll up on Sundays. Uh, and then um, when Alex Bloomberg took off and did his own thing and did Startup, I was there rabidly listening to Startup, hoping for him to succeed, not only because it was a great podcast listening to him, you know, initiate an entire enterprise on his own, but also because I just wanted more podcasts. I just wanted there to be other things that I could listen to. And there was such a dearth of them. And this wasn't that long ago. This was only like, you know, whatever Startup is, three three years ago? Maybe, yeah. maybe not even. Um, I love them. I love books, as we know. And then, so what I really love is stories and being told a story, I think, is just the best thing in the world. I, to my husband's dismay, am not a passionate music lover. I, I wince and cringe as I say that because I realise that's like saying you hate puppies. But I, I'm not, I'm just not, I don't have that in me. So when I get in the car or when I go anywhere, I want to be told a story. I really do. I, I want... Um, a book on tape or I want a podcast and when I haven't got one I feel sort of deeply disappointed and then I phone a friend but but friends just make a note you're like third choice if you get a phone call from me from the car it's because there was nothing better to listen to um so there I made that public um so 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 there was a deep and abiding love of podcasts and, and a deep respect for how good they could be and and then my manager my my brilliant and inspiring and endlessly sort of prompting manager there's a guy called John Rubenstein and John reached out to me and said we've been approached by a company who you know help make podcasts and I thought of you and would you be interested in hosting one and I just reflexively was like no no I don't know how to do that no I don't know how to do that and then I slept on it for literally one night and woke up and was like yeah I know what I want to do I want to do a podcast where I invite people to talk about the five books that have shaped them. Because as a kid, I grew up with Desert Island Discs, which is an institution in England and this amazing, amazing radio show uh, where they interview, you know, important people from all walks of life, internationally renowned, uh, about the five pieces of music that matter to them that they would take to a desert island and the show's been you know is long going and, and revered and beloved and I, I love it as much as anyone I'm not presuming to do desert island discs but I did take the idea and think well how do I do a homespun version of it that is more conversational and and not intimidating that was what was really important for me was that this should not feel like we're sitting down for an Oxford tutorial, but that we should talk about books as a way in to talk about life and the other things that matter to you. Well, let me ask you this question. Yeah. You know, you're done with the season. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you start, you and I had a conversation at the beginning. You've finished a season. What has been the most surprising thing that you've experienced uh, doing this podcast? Um. I think overall, the big takeaway has been how willing people are to share themselves when you use a book as the gateway drug. Um, I think if I'd reached out to all these people and said, hi, can I just interview for an hour? Everyone would have been like, oh, I'm really busy. I'm not sure I've got time for that. Um, I think what's lovely is watching them forget that there's a microphone at around the 15 to 17 minute mark and relax enough hopefully with the understanding that we're not going to get all into you know um i don't know grammar and punctuation and why joyce writes like he does or anything close to that um just how generous people are with themselves when it comes to sharing stories and anecdotes and things it's really really lovely i think that's been i don't know that it's been surprising i hoped for that but I have been pleasantly surprised to find that that is true. Have there been any discoveries that you've made, you know, like, you know, like, oh, you know, I actually, since the time we recorded, because if people should know, people listening, that the podcast wasn't recorded in a week. It's been a, a few months, you know, yeah. over the span of a few months. And so are there any books that you've picked up and read since that people have recommended yes. from the show? I've had so much fun doing that. So, um... Yes, yeah, so Julie Bowen, one of her books was by Adam Johnson, who wrote The Orphan Master's Son, which won the Pulitzer Prize, which I dutifully bought and started and 
thought the prose was amazing and I just couldn't fucking finish it. And I think I'm the only person that just couldn't. Everyone I know loved it. So when she recommended one of her five books was this book, Fortune Smiles, which is his book of short stories. I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this guy another go because I, I'm sh- he's clearly a great writer. I just couldn't, couldn't make it through the one that won the Pulitzer. Fortune Smiles is breathtaking. I mean a fucking killer collection of short stories it pulls no punches it's dark uh it's mischievous you cannot believe the same writer wrote all i think it's five maybe six stories in this book the voices are so so different the psyches he climbs inside the points of view he takes on Uh, that one was that one was a really fun fun discovery for me i loved that and i would not have found it i wouldn't have gone there i don't think without julie Mm. um Sean Carroll was a really fun, um, my dark matter physicist who Mm -hmm. who haven't listened to that podcast. That's a, I love doing that one. Um, he recommended his, it was not one of his five, but it was somewhere buried in the podcast. I don't remember the title because I don't remember anything. Um, but it was, it was a very, very cool, dark, noirish, um, novel that had recently come out again. I can look this up and then we can slip it in, but if not, doesn't matter listen to the podcast um yeah and um and he and anyway that was a that was a killer beach read and super fun um Cass Sunstein um talked about uh Somerset Maugham and that sent me back to looking over some of the Somerset Maugham stories uh, all of it's been really fun I found myself rereading just generally because of talking about how much rereading is such a is such a thing and and it's not such a thing that's it's really imprecise how much rereading um is a revisiting not just of a book but of who you were at a certain time and that's been that's been really fun i just reread anna karenina um for another project that i'm working on and and i haven't read that since i was in my 20s and just revisiting that and realizing like oh when i was in my 20s and read this i had no fucking idea what this book was about i really didn't i was just like bullshit 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 anna and vronsky having a crazy affair great bullshit 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 and anna and vronsky and now rereading it i was like oh anna and vronsky that love affair is great don't get me wrong it's the least of what that book is about all the other stuff Levin and Kitty and all these other um, people and voices in it and who Tolstoy is and how much he just loves human beings. It was just fun. And I don't think I'd have picked Anna Karenina up in such a rush if I weren't so interested by the idea of rereading at the moment. And that's entirely because of the podcast. Now, let me ask you this question. Yeah. Maybe we'll cut this out. (laughs) Did you read this Americana? This Jenny Connor, I thought you thought she had financial interest in this Americana. She was pushing it so hard. <laughs> That's so good. I did actually read it. Oh, you I did? Yeah, but I didn't finish it. I got halfway through it, and I, I really liked it. I really did enjoy it. I'm not quite sure why it's half finished by my bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, honestly, because of just this... I, I'm just voracious with books. So mm-hmm. I have currently... A pile of I'm gonna say eight books by my bed right now and I have started all of them and I have two going on my Kindle so I'm not saying that Americana won't get finished because it almost certainly will mm-hmm. I'm just not guaranteeing that it's gonna happen right now because there are others that have inched their way in between but I started it uh, because I had to because I was because she virtually held me down and made me read it then and there in front <laughs> I know. of her. Um, and I, and I see why. I, I see why. I'm curious as to... I'm still curious, because I don't think I got a full answer as to why it's one of her five. Because um, that seems to me... It's a big deal. I mean, just 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 this last week, knowing that you were going to interview me, mm-hmm. picking my five... I mean, I was sweating it right up to this morning. I had four of them, but the fifth one was touch and go, man. It was a really close thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> there, if there are only five. You have to pick really carefully. So, I still don't really know why Americana is her five, but maybe I will know when I've finished it. 
Yeah, maybe you will. Now, let's actually, you know, let's, let's jump into your first book. And we're just going to go in the order that you sent them, because there must have been a reason. Yeah, they might not be, but I'll, I'll, we, can re, we can rejig it if I send okay. them in the real order, yeah. So the first one you uh, put, what you, the first one you listed was Where the Wild Things Are by Marie Sendak. And I'm going to be like you, I'm saying, and it was published in, I have to go to my computer, and it was published in 1963. Now, before we say anything... Hmm. Maybe there are some people who couldn't read the 300 some odd words in this book. <laughs> Why don't you give us like a brief summary of what it's about? Well, Where the Wild Things Are is about a little boy, Max, in a wolf suit. And he gets sent to bed without his supper because he's been so naughty. And while he's in bed, the, um, the forest grows up all around him. And he sails in a boat through a year and a day to the land of where the wild things are. And then he becomes king of the wild things. And then the wild rumpus starts. And then Max smells something from home and feels homesick and realizes he needs to go home. And the wild things roar and say, do not go, we love you so. But he gets in the boat and says, no. And he sails back through a year and a day in his boat, back to his bedroom. And when he gets to his bedroom, his supper is waiting for him and it is still hot. That's almost verbatim. <laughs> it sounds like it. Now, <laughs> let me ask you this. Why this book? This book, well, my papa, my Argentine, wonderful, uh, glamorous, disastrous dad, uh, who I would only see really at weekends when I was very young. They split when I was very young. And then uh, sporadic holidays and then increasingly sporadically throughout my life. But as a very little girl, he would read me Where the Wild Things Are. And I'm sure my long-suffering mum did too, but the one I remember is Papa. And there was something about Max and his adventures that I sort of fused onto my dad and his disappearing and his adventures and his disappearing into the world and coming back full of stories. Um, and then Papa got so bored of reading Max and Where the Wild Things Are that he did spin-offs early fan oh, fiction and so he would take Max on increasingly more and more lurid amazing adventures and then Max uh, developed an uncle who was a pirate and so Max's uncle would take Max on even deeper darker adventures so I actually hadn't reread Max and Where the Wild Things Are itself for years and years, because I lived off the spin-offs for years and years. I don't think I really came back to Max to the original text until I had Billy, my daughter, who's now four and a half. Um, and it was so fun to come back to the book again and be like, oh, that's right. This is where Max's uncle came from. And when I say years, I mean, my dad would... I went to a boarding school when I was 11. And my dad was particularly absentee for those seven years that I was at boarding school. I think I saw him... I think I saw him once, maybe twice in seven years. Mm -hmm. It was a long haul. And he would write me um, letters, those thin, tissue-thin blue airmail letters that would arrive. And I think probably because he was in trouble himself and not in a position to tell me about his real escapades and adventures in life, he would continue to tell me Mac stories. And I, at the time, would be 12 or 13 and just deeply eye-rolling about everything, P.S., because who wasn't a, as an adolescent? But I would sort of roll my eyes at yet another fucking fairy story from my dad and be like, why am I getting a story about Max and the fucking adventures of his pirate uncle? Where are you? What are you doing? When, of course, embedded in these letters is everything my father was doing but couldn't tell me, I think, at the time. So, uh, so Max became a... Uh, yeah, I, I, Max is definitely number one on this list because it was the first book and then the beginning of so much sort of mythologizing of my dad. Do you still have those letters from your teenage years? I do. I think they're at home in London, somewhere in an attic, in a trunk full of stuff that I should dig them out. I always mean to whenever I go. And there's always just such a long list of things to do when I get to London and rooting through the attic is, is low on that list. But even as I'm talking, I'm thinking, yeah, where are they? I should look them out because I need them and my kids need them. And uh, 
And they were great. Now that's a good question. Now you know you've read you've read where the wild things are to your kids. Have they now? Have you taken the mantle of the uncle, or is there an aunt now who takes them on other adventures? No, because mercifully, Davy, my husband, who is in fact a writer, screenwriter, and a uh, TV producer. Uh, he has mercifully taken on the mantle of being fiction writer in our household. So I get to read the scripted books, and then Davy has to do a puppet story every single night, God bless him, and get into bed with Billy and makes a story up from scratch every night. So they have completely their own thing going on. I mean, currently the two lead characters are called Zed and Beautiful Green, Mm-hmm. Um, and they go on their own adventures. Davy's now so exhausted because he's made such a rod for his own back because he's decided he has to invent a new story every single night. He doesn't reprise them, which I think is just fucking batshit. But anyway, each to their own. Uh, so he's now raiding. He's now raiding old movies for stories. He came down the other <laughs> night and told me that he basically just told Billy the story of Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's smart. It is. It's great. But one day Billy's going to sit down and watch like Jaws and be like, "Hang on, this wait a minute." Yeah, you see, I I would play it smart with my nieces. I would be like, "And now we're going to tell the story about the two little kids who sat down and watched Disney Channel and left me alone." (laughs) And those would be the stories I would tell. Yeah, that won't fly in this house, sadly. I probably wouldn't fly with them either. That's why I'm the hated uncle and their only uncle. Um, what, what, if there's any, why did this make it to your top five books? Um, why did it? Because I could, it couldn't not. I mean, it just couldn't not. It was such that that one was a gimme of. Oh, okay, of, yeah, it's your first one that you listed. Yeah, I didn't even hesitate. I, I mean, it was probably somewhere buried in the seed of this whole podcast. Was like. Well, one of mine would be Max and Where the Wild Things Are. I wonder what someone else's would be. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's that, it's that entrenched in me. Um, it wasn't even a reach. And if I can remember correctly, I think Chris also had Where the Wild Things Are. Didn't he? Or it was mentioned in that episode, it, I believe. I think I mentioned it as, a, oh, I see. as one of... Because he picked um, childhood books. A, a childhood book. He picked... Um, the Greek myths, if I'm not wrong, and yes. and and I said to him, oh yeah, that he was that was his very literary para- um, version of it, and my not so literary parallel was this 300 word children's book <laughs> <laughs> that you recited from memory. Well, yeah, because I got kids. <laughs> All right, so let's go on to the next book, and the next book you have on the list is Portrait of a Lady by Henry. Oh. Yes, by Henry James. Yeah. But the one that should come next, just in terms of biography, is um, The Little Cookbook, which is called, I think oh. it was called, A Feast of Seasons. Yeah. I, I, you know, I tried doing research on this. Yeah. I couldn't, the one I only found was about, like, and I was like, there's no way Sonia no. is celebrating the Bible. No, it's not. <laughs> Did you find it's that? It's so not. I, okay, so here's the deal. This is the, it's the teeniest, tiniest cookbook. It literally is about the size of, think of two deck of cards sitting side by side that's how small this cookbook is mm-hmm. it was a little white cookbook with an and it was entirely illustrated with pretty um hand-drawn images it was not even photographs and i must have got given this cookbook when i was about six years old and i think it's called a feast of seasons or a seasonal feast or something and my mum's currently on vacation but i texted her this morning to say mom what the fuck is this cookbook called and she was like babe i'm not at home i can't tell you i'll tell you when i get home so we may add an addendum where i tell you what the actual title of this undoubtedly out of print little kids cookbook is because we still have it at home again in London on a bookshelf somewhere mm-hmm. um, anyway I I don't even remember who gave it to me maybe a godparent or something and it was a tiny cookbook but with these beautiful pictures of and it was meant for little ones to do and it was very simple stuff like chocolate dipped strawberries or um, sponge pudding which is so English and is basically like a weird trifle where you line a bowl with sponge fingers and then put custard and jelly and all kinds of weirdness on the top but it it was uh, huge for me because I was an only child I didn't have brothers and sisters I didn't have a dad around a lot I had a mum who was a nursery school teacher so worked and cooking rapidly became something I just loved doing and this little book was the gateway into that. It was um, it was the first time I did, and then and then it just took off from there. So I could do, make these little things by myself, and then I decided that I wanted to host dinner parties 
and so that was what I started doing, aged about seven or eight, I think. Oh yeah, we heard about them on the Jenny Connor episode. You were talking Did about you? like yes, yeah, the theme, exactly. the theme dinners, themed ones, back to front dinners, colors. Uh, you had to eat food that was all green or all orange. I mean, it was out of control. It really was, but it was uh, the beginning of my deep deep love affair with with cooking it was the first cookbook i owned and if you came to my house you would see a giant giant bookcase in our living room and a whole third of that bookcase is devoted to cookbooks so um so yeah so i related to jenny heavily on that one in terms of who <laughs> in terms of a love affair with a cookbook and the ability to curl up in bed with a cookbook so again when we were doing when i was doing my list i felt like yeah it doesn't it doesn't make sense unless I include a cookbook, and and then if I'm going to, it should be the, it should be the very first one. So okay, I have a few questions based on this cookbook because yeah. cookbook cookbooks are near and dear to my heart. So here's right. my first question: mm. Is are there any recipes you particularly remember being good that you really liked? From that little one, no. My chocolate dipped strawberries were a hit always, but there's nothing wrong with them. Um, Cause would you like to revisit it? Would you like to revisit that cookbook and maybe I now would. later? I would do it with my kiddies. I would yeah. love to dig it out and do that one with my kids. That's for sure. And I think I'd love to. I mean, Billy and I cook all the time. I mean, she'll help me make scrambled eggs and she makes pancakes by herself. And cooking, it's something I've definitely passed on. Um, uh, but no, it. Uh, there's other. I mean, when I was thinking about this and thinking which is the cookbook that I should include. Uh, the other one that I kept coming back to was Jamie Oliver's first cookbook, The Naked mm-hmm. Chef, which I loved and got a very early copy of because my mum's sister is uh, was sort of chief editor at Penguin for a long time, uh, still works there, and discovered Jamie Oliver uh, and got him to write The Naked Chef. He was she was his editor on that. Okay. Book. So I got a really early copy of it. And immediately put that to work. So I, you know, so yes, I have recipes of his that I revisit all the time. Anything tray baked, anything, you know, where you put a piece of salmon in with on sitting on a bed of vegetables or um, his risottos I used to make all the time back in London where weather like that merits a risotto, whereas California <laughs> doesn't lend itself to that. Um, yeah, there were lots of favorites from, from that first cookbook. Well, so let me going back to the from the first. So for the first cookbook, would you think you would like alter the recipes, or would you cook them as is, like nineteen seventy five style? Oh, nineteen seventy five style, man. We're talking yeah. OG. This is no. There is no. There was no messing with a recipe when you're seven, dude. Yeah, yeah I was meticulous. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, no. I was. I was completely devoted to whatever the book told me to do. I've always been good at my homework. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. fairly diligent about about being told what to do okay going back to jamie oliver now let me ask you this because i like cookbooks and i know jamie oliver exists i know he's very famous i've never cooked from one of his cookbooks but could you tell the audience could you tell me what makes a jamie oliver recipe a jamie oliver recipe what makes him different from other chefs i think what makes him different and what particularly made him different then was how approachable he was he was all about particularly if you saw him and do any of his cookery shows he's all about yeah, add a dash of this and a splash of that and uh, just a handful of this and whiz it in the micro, you know, whiz it in the blender. And if you haven't got a blender, don't worry, just chop it up, mash it up with your hands, get in there. He's a bloke, He's a, which is an English expression meaning a sort of guy's guy. Like there's nothing, he's deliberately not pretentious and he's deliberately trying to make cooking accessible and he honestly made it okay for men to cook in England I would say that in England until then we'd been stuck in the 50s uh, and it was this very gendered approach to cookery and you know we had Delia Smith and Nigella Lawson and all these other lovely cozy um, women who taught us how to cook and Jamie Oliver was the first um, recognizable guy to be like yeah this isn't intimidating just get on with it just try it. it you can't get it wrong um and because he wasn't touting recipes that were particularly um not he wasn't asking you to make meringues or bake which is much more precise and you can't really mess around when it comes to pastry you know he was making food that was about here's how to get food on the table here's how to make supper for your kids and here's how to do it easily and without um, without getting neurotic about it, 
I think that's what we all loved about him. I'm going to bastardize one of your final questions. Yeah. What was the last cookbook you threw across the room? <laughs> um, I think it was, funnily enough, I think it was one that Mercedes lent me. Uh, our <laughs> mutual friend, uh-huh. Chris White's wife, is one of my dearest friends. And she got, she was in a cookbook club and she gave me a book and was like, here, I'm not sure... You might like this. This is more up your street than mine. And it was all kinds of Middle Eastern recipes, which I'm a sucker for. I love, you know, fatouche and hummus and falafel and all of that. I'm a big Ottolenghi cook, so I, mm-hmm. I, I sort of am familiar with the palate. And this cookbook just, it was it was Middle Eastern street food. I can't remember the title. And I just, I just fucking hated it. I just hated it. I, I got, I didn't even try making any of the recipes because I know enough about a cookbook that I can read it and go and get into it immediately and be like, yep, yeah, I'm down. This is this I can do. And this was fiddly and we- oh, I tell you the other one, the Jelena cookbook. Oh, oh yeah, I've been thinking God. about that one. Oh, don't even get me started. But it's it you it's so misleading because the food there is so killer and so great and you open yeah. the cookbook and you glance at it and you go great this only has like six ingredients I can totally and and one paragraph yeah. of text I can totally handle this mm-hmm. and then you actually read it and you realize that all six of the ingredients are compound ingredients that you were supposed to go back and make on page twelve oh. so it's lists of like use preserved lemons wrapped by virgins and in velvet that you marinated a month earlier, then take the pig that you recently corralled, strung up and roasted for four days. I mean, it's just insane. It's insanity, that cookbook. But I'm going to have to glance at it next time you're, I'm at your house. In fact, you know, I actually have a cookbook I've been wanting you to look at. I, for some reason, I told Mercedes this too when I got it. This cookbook has you all over it. Oh, which one? It's called Six Seasons. Oh, I don't by know Joshua it. McFadden. It's uh, it's about uh, it's a vegetable cookbook, but he divides the whole cookbook in. He divides the the year into six seasons, where summer has three. Mm-hmm. So you have Brilliant. winter, spring, three summer seasons, and Brilliant. fall. Already love it. And it's the vegetables that are in season, and he does amazing things with them. And the recipes are only for vegetables in each season, what to cook in that season. And that's it, it, genius. I love and, that. And it's a beautiful cookbook, and I was like, this has Sonia Walger written all over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll check that one out. Yeah, put it on your nightstand next to Americana. Yeah, okay, exactly. let's move <laughs> Let's move on. What's the next book you want to tackle? Um, so, the next book would probably be Portrait of a Lady, I guess. Oh, by Henry James in 1881, that one? Oh, that one. Oh, that old thing? Yeah. Yeah, that old thing. Um, yes, that... Um, Golly, just even thinking about Portrait of a Lady makes me smile. So Portrait of a Lady is about um, the adventures of Isabel Archer, who is this just wonderful character. Um, And uh, she's alone in the world and orphaned and then marries a a man who she thinks will be um, an interesting man despite other suitors who she turns down, who are obviously uh, better suited to her, but she picks the wrong guy. And then um, discovers that he is so the wrong man and not who she thought at all, and that he's actually been having an affair with a woman, the very woman who who match made them in the first place. Um, and, uh, And she... Well, I'm not even going to say anymore because I want people to read the book. Yeah, it's, I don't think you want to spoil it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I probably first read this book, I don't even know when, maybe I was 17. I've read it so many times in my life uh, that they've all kind of blended into one. It's really one of the few books that I have read over and over and over again. Because um, as I say, my, my interest in rereading has been so recent so coincided with the podcast up until now I've, I've always felt like there's so much still to read why would you waste time rereading you already covered that uh portrait of a lady is the one exception to that i would say um i did when i went to oxford i uh, it, uh to the end of your final year you specialize in one author and you write your thesis on that author and it was just a no-brainer for me to do Henry James, really as an excuse to write about Portrait of a Lady, and then to read around all his other stuff. And I was thinking about this the other day, that it's so funny to me that I, at that age, 
at you know the ripe old age of 20 uh narrowed in on an american who chose to live out his years in england and spent more of his life in england than he ever did in the states and wrote the majority of his stories about um the disconnect how much we have in common with our american and english cousins and and then how unlike we are and then the misunderstandings between the old world and the new and the customs of the europeans versus the sort of puritanical older customs of the of the americans just how funny it is that i have ended up being an english woman living in america and have now spent you know 17 years here so i'm not i'm not quite even with it yet because i came when i was 26 so in another nine years i will have done as much time in america as i have done in it as i have ever done in england um it's just funny to me it's just funny that 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 at some some somewhere in me recognized that this was of interest to me that there was something interesting and unusual and that i was going to pursue down the line about this relationship between america and england and innocence and experience which is i think really what henry james is writing about you know what's so funny though is you're saying this and i remember when i was reading sort of a plot summary of the of the novel Mm -hmm. that one of the things that got mentioned quite a bit was how independent the main character isabella is that her name isabel isabel oh isabel how independent uh isabel is and Mm. i was like this everything that i was reading about isabel i was like this is sonia walker like is she someone that you've you've strived to be like i i have loved her my whole life i'm not gonna lie uh it was a bitter bitter moment when nicole kidman played her in the movie I remember just feeling like, oh, they didn't wait for me. And at the time I was like doing, you know, BBC dramas as the sixth on the billing or something. But still it felt like an utter betrayal that no one had waited for me. That that and now I'm way too old to play her. But yes, I I related deeply to this earnest book loving ferociously independent no one will tell me what to do i will carve my own way um i will make my mistakes i will live with them i i i i just i felt i just knew her i just felt i just knew her i i still do when i read her now i i just feel like oh i know this woman inside and out i i still tear up in the there's a a whole chapter that's sort of three quarters of the way through where she sits by the fireside and she realises the marriage that she's in. And uh, I, I do not relate to this part. I am in a very happy marriage, I would add. But the process of watching her go from being a young woman, a young girl, to being a married woman that happens just in that chapter is extraordinary i mean i get goosebumps just telling you about it it's and that and that a 60 year old gay man wrote this and knew this about about what happens inside a young woman's psyche is extraordinary to me it's it's what makes it's what makes novels better than anything i'm afraid i say that as a devoted actress but um there is no movie or tv show that can show you the interior of someone's mind like a novel can well, you know, look, speaking as a gay man, yeah, uh, I can tell you, you know, and I, and we know this, is that a lot of the most iconic women characters in both literature and film are often written by gay men. And I yeah. wonder if there's some sort of connection. I think gay men a lot of times love strong, independent, intelligent women. Right. And love to write for them. Right. I, I agree. I think that's absolutely true, Joe. I really do. I think I... I I've just come off the catch and and had that same experience. I think, um, yes, I wonder what that is. I wonder if it's that gay men have such uh, reverence for their mothers, for the strong women who've raised them, or a hunger for that anima part of them that relates to it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't feel qualified to to know why what that relationship is. But yeah, I'm going to jump in with a weird question here, and I think I'm sort of. Uh I'm sure there's some sort of turn of phrase that explained this, but I think we might know what the answer is. But if there was a novel you would recommend to Billy at 13 or 14, what novel would it be? Would it be this? Would it be... That's such a good question. 
I will hand Billy this as soon as I think she's ready for it. I think 13 or 14 would be too young. I think you need to be 18, 17 or 18 to get into Isabel. Um, but I don't presume that. I mean, Billy's a bright, sensitive, smart, smart kid, so she'd get it. But no, 13 is too young. Uh, well, let me rephrase the question. Let me rephrase yeah. the question. Let's say the question is, what is the one book you think every young woman or adolescent young woman should, which is the same thing, which is, what what book do you think that they should, the one book they should read? As, a, as, a, as an accomplished woman, what, what book do you wish, are you glad you have read or you wish you would have read at that age? I... I don't know what I wish I would have read because honestly, I'd read fucking everything. I really had. I mean, I was chasing down books off my stepfather's nightstand by the end. I, I was going into my dying grandfather's room and, you know, stealing his complete works of Sherlock Holmes, which he was then desperately looking for because uh, I was just short on books. You know so, who could have found it? <laughs> he should have hired Sherlock Holmes to find the book. You should have done. Um, I was reading inappropriately advanced books. I mean, I, there's a photo of me. My father took me to um, Peru. He remarried a Peruvian later in life, and we went to Machu Picchu to see the lost city of the Incas, and I was, I don't know, nine, ten at the time, maybe, and, uh, you know, was a- appropriately gobsmacked, but also bored, because there comes a point where you're like, yeah, it's another fucking temple. I get it. And there's a photo of me looking mildly bored holding Uncle Tom's cabin <laughs> I was reading I was reading fucking Uncle Tom's cabin at the top of Machu Picchu <laughs> That's appropriate. 10. yeah totally appropriate god knows I got it I really totally got it but um so no I don't there's no book that I wish I'd read at all would I think the question is leading and I will answer it in the way that I think it's headed which is yes I would I would argue that every girl should read Portrait of a Lady because um, for the reasons I've said because she's so complicated and so earnest and it's and and it's wonderful in a way and sort of instructive to see that it's not enough just to be good and earnest and well-intentioned that can go awry in the world and can be taken advantage of to a degree um but that you can redeem that too and you can come back from that um so yeah i i would i would urge that book on on young women for sure all right we have two books left where do you want to go now um i think revolutionary road is my next one by Richard Yates, 1961. Did I get it right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I don't know. I don't know when that was published, yeah. but yeah, it sounds right. Um, so this book, this book was, um, oh, this book was important for lots of reasons. This book was, I, I think I probably read it when I was about 24, maybe 25. Mm-hmm. I hadn't moved to LA yet. Uh, I was given it by a girlfriend who at the time worked at Daunt's bookstore, which is one of the oldest bookstores in England, which literally means it's been around since about 18, you know, 60, 1700 or something. I mean, it's an old, Mm -hmm. old bookstore. And it's kind of prestigious to get to work at Daunt's because it's not just stocking shelves. You actually have to know books and love them and be able to recommend them. So when Lucy handed me Revolutionary Road, it was a treat. It was like, oh, an old book I really don't know anything about. And I take this recommendation seriously because it comes from her. And I read it and just had my eyes on stalks. I just sort of had my heart in my mouth. I couldn't believe, I, you know, I'd read great literature. I'd read tons of books. Something about this portrait of a marriage and a marriage unfolding in front of your eyes and coming apart and the dissolution of it and the the way he atomizes um, the tiny moments and undercurrents in a conversation between husband and wife, all that is unsaid. So he'll give you the dialogue, but then he'll go into the husband's point of view and the wife's point of view about how they hear that dialogue differently, um, how the wife's shrug of a shoulder undermines everything she's just said for an entire page. The... Richard Yates's understanding of the dissonance between what we say and what we do and who we think we are in the world versus who we actually are in the world. It's just devastating. It's just devastating, that book. And 
again, it was one of those ones where I, I, I saw the movie and, and they did a beautiful job of the movie, all of the actors and the director, I thought. And it is nothing, nothing like the book. It is just, it can't hold a candle to the book because the book is all about interiority. It is all about the difference between the outside and the inside. Um, and and the posturing and the fact that Frank and April Wheeler, Frank is, is a sort of prototype for um, Don Draper, I think, in Mad Men. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm not wrong in saying that... Um, uh, what's his name? The guy who created Mad Men, Mac, uh, Matt Weiner, no. Matt Weiner, Matt Weiner. Anyway, whatever. We can fix that. Um, but he, uh, I think, Revolutionary Road was a huge inspiration for him, um, and and that world that it's in of the sort of the end of the fifties. You know, it's published nineteen sixty one, as you say, but it very much charts the end of the fifties and a drinking. Uh, a drinking, high living world, and then the beginning of the toppling of the conventional marriage, and sort of women coming up for air and saying, "Wait, who am I, and where, where's my voice in this?" Um, and Frank, this disillusioned writer who's taken a job in an advertising agency, and he's sort of posing about it and and affecting this ironic stance about like, "Well, it's just what I do right now," but really, I'm a writer until he realizes it's not what he's doing right now. It is it is who he is. So you, you can't keep this sort of ironic distance between who you really think you are versus what you're actually doing all day. And they live in the suburbs and again, they sort of hold themselves at a distance from all their neighbors who they think of as they sort of dismiss as these narrow-minded suburbanites. Um, and and yet they sort of slowly realize that that is exactly who they are themselves that they there is no distance between them and us that is who they are um and then this sort of marriage falls apart anyway it's it's a beautiful devastating book now it's you said that you read it when you were a lot younger is this a book that you've reread and found wisdom in in your older years yeah i've read it since then i haven't read it in the last 5 seven years I don't mm-hmm. think I have reread it I mean I read it very I read it quickly once when I did um, I then reread it a second time not long after because I was coming here to do season two of Mind of the Married Man which is the HBO show I did that effectively brought me to America and Mike Binder who created the show and played my husband on it I brought him Revolutionary Road in the hiatus between seasons one and two and said, Mike, I know we're writing a comedy. I get that. And I get that this book is tragic, but read it because it is a portrait of a marriage. And I think, I think you'll love it. And Mike did and, and adored it and, and pulled whole storylines from it and, um, was deeply inspired by it. And I'm so grateful that he listened to me enough to care to read it. Um, so that was twice in quick succession. And then soon after I, probably a year after that, I was like, you know what, this book matters so much to me. I'd like to write the, try and write the movie of it. So um, I have somewhere a battered, tattered, annotated copy full of um, dog ears and post-its and markings on it where I was beginning to try and see how you would make this, how, what would be scenes, what would make the cut to, for sort of scene work. Um, and then, you know, Kate Winslet beat me to it. So, so that's that's gathering dust somewhere in an attic. But yeah, so I've, I read it multiple times in a short space of time and then not probably not for a while. Who's the kind of person you would recommend this book to? Who would you, you say, you need to read this? Anyone who really loves... Um, a lover of, of, of real literature, not just story, but a lover of, of interiority in literature I, I would hand this press this on I, I'm not sure if you love um, I'm not sure if you know if you're more a genre person if you're more into sci-fi or, or, or criminal stuff or whatever if, if you are if you are as I am just deeply interested in relationships and how they work um, that's I, I would I would yeah I would just I have. I, I've lost track of how many copies of this book that I've bought and handed out over the years. I'm sure Amazon could tell me. And let's move on now to our final book, the one you've listed in the top five. The final book is Last Night by James Salter, which is um, 
an exquisite collection of short stories. Uh, I think he won the Penn Faulkner Award for it. And um, Salter is sort of known as, you know, a writer's writer. He's not necessarily, he's not as well known as he deserves to be, I think is what that means. Um, but anyone, anyone who knows him knows that a more elegant contemporary writer of prose that does not exist, I don't think. Um, he died last year and I was honoured enough to have met him and gone to his house because I read the title story last night in the New Yorker years ago, uh, well not that many years ago, maybe eight eight years ago um, and I was just haunted by it It's a haunting is the word, it is a completely um, beautiful and seductive and dark, dark story and I went off and bought the collection and read them all and rang my manager and said I want to, I want the rights to all these stories I want to do them as an anthology for HBO I want to do like a sort of Tales of the Unexpected um, which were Roald Dahl stories that were on the BBC for years in the 80s, 70s um, I want to do it like that I want to, I want to write a script for each one of these 10 stories and my manager said okay great easy with the ambition um it's that's really fucking hard and an enormous amount of work why don't we start with one story and you see if you can make that work so I was like oh god okay oh, annoying um <laughs> totally accurate and um so I did so I wrote a movie script uh based on last night and wrote to Salter asking him for permission for the rights and I wrote to him directly and um, began this sort of little correspondence with him where we would write back and forth. He agreed. Um, he would write on old scraps of hotel paper with a line through them. So he'd obviously taken stationery from everywhere he'd ever stayed and I, everyone is on a different piece of old hotel stationery. And then I wrote the script and then I took it to him. Uh, I was in staying with friends in um, Long Island and he lived in Watermill and so I took the script and dropped it into his hands and had a cup of tea with him and Kay, his wife and left it with him and this is a movie that still has yet to be made we got very close, we had a whole cast and then the financing fell through and blah 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 anyone who's ever tried to make a movie knows how their story goes so it's still in a drawer um, it's called The Last Resort and and yeah, this fifth book was a tough one for me. I wasn't. I really didn't know what where I was going to go with it. And I sort of went to my bookcase and went to my Kindle and went to my office and stared at it all. And then I saw last night, and I was like, yeah, I think this book does matter, and was pivotal because it was the beginning of me really taking myself seriously as a writer and as someone who uh, was not just going to talk about making a movie but was actually going to try and see it through and even if I didn't or haven't yet um, it really did mark the beginning of me saying yeah I don't just act I, I produce in all senses of that word I, I, I create did, did James Salter ever give you any thoughts on, on your script? Um, I think he did and I, I think I have a letter about that somewhere too he was not an emailer um, yes, he was He was gently approving. I mean, the script takes enormous liberties. I use it as the, st as the jumping off point. Uh, it's, a, it's a wide, wide deviation from it. But, um, oh, okay. Um, so I'm sure it was startling to him. I'm sure he felt like, wait, where's my story in this? And then you get to the, you get to the final act and you realise, um, oh, that's where the story lands. That's where this is. Um, but yes, yeah, so his story is basically the third act. So it takes quite a long time for you to get anywhere near his story. His story all takes place in one night. And I didn't want to make a movie that took place in one night. Um, so I wind it back through the summer and through all the events that lead up to that last night. Ah, interesting. Look at yeah. you, Sonia Walger. Yeah. The writer. <laughs> 
Yeah. Can't wait to be talking about that movie that's going to get made. La- in fact, I'm gonna, I, I do want to tell you this. I now have the rights and I'm making that movie. And I was, this, this whole thing <laughs> has been a ruse to solve the problem that I had with James Alters last night. Thank you, girl. It's so welcome. worth it. We're so glad. And you're going to put Kate Winslet in the role, just to round it Kate out. Kate Winslet and Nicole Kidman. But they're going, to sh- they're going to share the roles. Bingo. Done. In fact, and you. they're also going to get writing credit, too, which is so funny. Okay, perfect. That sounds about right. So, <laughs> so, so let me so let me ask you this question mm. you know you gave me five books it was so hard for you are there any like are there two or three and we're not going to really get into them are there two or three that you're like god i it almost made the list it, it was it was i remember i paul mccartney was putting together a set list he was going to do like his greatest hits kind of concert tour mm-hmm. and i remember the the reporter asked him what song didn't just didn't make the cut and it was strawberry feet not strawberry fields it was penny lane or something like that right yeah and i was like imagine that you have a catalog where penny lane doesn't make the cut <laughs> you know so what what books didn't well just just, just missed it the one one that was a very close run thing was a harold pinter play called the lover which i i just love that play um the lover and the real thing by tom stoppard are my two favorite favorite plays for different reasons the lover was the first play that i did at oxford and um is a essentially a two-hander and began my love affair with acting but but i i'd I'd sort of thought about this when i was putting my list together and was like yeah i can't single out the book that made me love acting i've loved this my whole life i can't there's no there's not one thing so it would be fake to make the lover one of my books but it but it is a beloved play and then the real thing by tom stoppard is uh, is just a masterful, masterful, brilliant, heartfelt play. One of the great Stoppard plays in that it's not just about um, intellectual gymnastics and, and extraordinary verbal acuity. It's also um, it's also devastating. I'm realizing all my favorite books are basically about the dissolution of a marriage, which is so depressing. <laughs> But, um, but I know Davey's going to listen to this and, and he's going to be like, like, do I need to know like, something? Exactly. You're trying to tell me something? No. I, I, this is what's so weird. Is I've been interested in this like long before I was ever married. I'm just so fascinated by relationships and what holds us together. It's what I'm interested in when I act. It's what it's all I'm ever interested in is the space between two people and what what fills it by either imagined or real. But what what goes on in that space? All right. So now we've come to the part. The famous Sonia Walger final questions. Yeah, which I deliberately did not look at, so I have no idea what I'm going to tell you. Good. Well, okay. you, you used to ask the questions. What do you mean? You, how did you not look at them? You know, I, don't first... anything. I don't know if I've mentioned this in my podcast. I have the memory of a goldfish. I have no uh, idea. I don't remember what we just talked about. So, you know, I, throw, it, uh, throw it at me. I'm Go with you. It. I'm okay. with you. But anyway, here we go. First one. Mm. What's a book you thought you would like but actually landed up hating? Hmm... So many. Well, let's think of the last one. Uh, Gravity's Rainbow. I started Thomas Pynchon. I, 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 it's also one of those books that I f- thought I should like. Not just thought I was going to, but I thought I should. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just couldn't get through it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. Gravity's Rainbow. All right. What's a book you thought you wouldn't like very much and landed up loving? Thought I wouldn't like. You said I never buy a book that I think I'm not going to like. I only buy books that I think I Okay, well, like. let, let's rephrase the question. Yeah. What's a book that you read that you were surprised by how much you liked it? Oh, well, I just finished a book called The Power by Naomi Alderman, mm-hmm. um, which, again, my brilliant aunt at Penguin uh, gave me. Uh, it's not even out in the States yet. And um, it just looked like a sort of fun summer read, and it ended up being so much more than that. So thought-provoking and brilliant. It's about women taking over the world, and it's written in the future, so there is no patriarchy anymore. It's entirely a matriarchal society, and um, and it's just it's so provocative. It's brilliant. I thought I began it thinking, oh, this will be sort of Hunger Gamesy, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's so much more than that. It's a really really great read. The Power. I highly recommend it. Incorrect. The correct answer, according to Jenny Connor, is Americana. <laughs> I stand Maybe she thought the book was called Americana, and so that's why <laughs> she just loves it so much. You go, gosh, a whole book about me. It's so great. I had this no experience. No one loves a pun like Joe. Yeah, no one loves a pun <laughs> like Joe. Okay, what is the last book you threw across the room? Easy. A Little Life. A Little Life, I think it's called. 
Yeah. The Peter Dinklage story. <laughs> you said that. I did not say that. I did okay. not say that. No. What's it, what's it about? And why did you throw it across the room? I absolutely hated it. It's by Hanya Yanagihara. I'm saying that wrong. Um, everyone loved this book. It was on everybody's favorite lists. I finished it to my horror because I kept waiting for the last page to tell me why this book was of any merit whatsoever. Um, I I found everyone in it despicable, uh, dislikable, unbelievable. Um, it was just a portrait of sadism, masochism, um, gay porn to a degree, but I don't care about that okay, if it's good. What's the name of this book again? Yeah, it's called A Little Life. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> sound of scratching pen. Um <laughs> Yeah, listen, gay porn that's good, I'm all down for. This is just, it, it's, it, it was just a horror show, this book. And, and largely, mostly what I mean is I just, I just winced in, in the absolute lack of humanity in it. I, Look, I, I found if you're it. doing gay porn right, there's going to be an absolute <laughs> lack of humanity. <laughs> then, then they're doing it right. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of wincing going on. <laughs> You're going to love it. Go get yeah. it. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. Interesting. You know, uh, you, you, you were trying to say the author's name, and it reminded me not this is just purely incidental. Mm. You pulled out the author of Americana's name as if you gave her that name. How? Because oh. that name was so... Could you pull, Could you do it again? Could no, you try it again? Don't even make me. Do not make me do that again. That took you. some practice. <laughs> that took some experience. And like I say, I'm a goldfish, and I have not got that right at my fingertips right now. Yeah, I could have sworn I even heard like a tongue click in there. Like it was, it was like, Magic Garden. And I was like, whoa, did she just pull that out? How did no. she? It sounded so natural. I know, I'm an actor. I do it for a I, living. Yeah, but don't yeah, ask me you know to what? remember it a month yeah. later. That's just yeah. not, not fair. Okay, now here we go. Here's the big question. The oh, one, you know, God. everybody, you all, you love this question. Yeah. What's the book that's going to guaranteed get you laid? Well, the reason I have this book is because I have one that did. So that's why I have that question. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the Sports Writer. The Sports Writer by Richard Ford. Um, I'm going to keep everyone anonymous in this story. But there was a moment in my life where I was reading this book. And uh, the guy in question uh, met me at the bar. So we, he wasn't just a random stranger. But I happened to be reading this as he walked into the bar. And um, I think if deals needed to be sealed, that sealed the deal that I was reading that I was reading um, a book that was that is fairly masculine, uh, as so much of Richard Ford's stuff is, but but that I was reading that, um, I think, just elevated me beyond all other blondes for at least that night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, that's my that's my gets you laid in a bar book. You know, I, you you were mentioning this in your interview with Jenny Connor, and I was is that the only podcast you've listened to? Did you listen to any of the others? No, I listened to all of them, but okay. th but it, for that one, you revealed the most in that interview. Okay. <laughs> but in, in that interview, you mentioned this book, you, mm. you know, and, uh, and, and she was saying, like, this is the book that guarantees. First of all, and this is where the flattery comes in. You're a beautiful, charming, intelligent woman. You do not need a book. <laughs> To get you late. I was like, you were overestimating men in general, by the right, way. Right, 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 right. No, no, no. I get that. I get that. I mean, you know, the what I mean with that question, that's just my glib way of phrasing it. But what, what I mean by that question is, what is the book that you know makes you look good when you recommend it? That, okay, that people it. don't see coming. That people are like, oh, okay, you read that book. I see. Yeah. Um, you know, we've all got one of those up our sleeves. All right. Well, uh... Sonia Walker, thank you for being. Oh, you know what? I'm gonna. You know, I want. I know what I want to finish with. Mm. And this will prove to you that I've listened to this show. <laughs> yeah. There is nothing more that you love than the end of this Fakakta play, Jerusalem. Oh yeah. Could you please wrap up this episode by telling us again about the last lines of Jerusalem? Of Jerusalem. Really. Why? Why am I telling you about this? The I'm guy not... bangs on the drum. Yeah, he bangs on the drum and he summons the giants. 
Are you really? Have I talked about this in all the episodes? Is that why you're I think me you've do mentioned this? it three times? Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> Mark Rylance in the play Jerusalem, playing the rooster, uh, summons the giants. All right, now I feel mortified, and I'll never mention it again. <laughs> have you brought up with Mark how, how much you like this? Because you worked with him, correct? I have not worked with Mark Rylance. I would give what my right you... arm to work with him. No, I haven't. I will. Believe me. As you know, I'll stop people in traffic and tell them about oh, this I moment. Know. You have yeah. to talk about this play you have. Not this movie, but last night. Yeah, there you go. That's who should, should be in it. He should be. And then he can... He Look, he'll bang the drum all right. <laughs> he plays will, his carms. I will make him bang his drums. <laughs> yeah, and he will be like, for England. Or what does he say at the end again? <laughs> I don't know. Stop rubbing it in. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being on your own podcast. Thank you for having me on my own podcast. This was so fun and so fucking instructive. And also, I'm stealing half your questions to ask my next <laughs> Wait, guest. they're your questions? No, yours were much better than mine. They were really, really good. Thank you. Thank you All for right. having me. That was me, Sonia Wolga, being interviewed by my producer, Joe Batanz. And you've been listening to Bookish. If you like the show, subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share one of the interviews on our social media, send someone an email to tell them you liked it, send them a text message, call them. Just let everybody know that Bookish is a podcast you love. All the music is created and performed by my multi-talented husband, Davy Holmes, and the show is produced by the patient Joe Batanz. Join me next week for my final interview with poet Robin Cost-Lewis. I fell in love with her when I read her poetry, and then all over again when she met me with a hug in the street outside her house. I am so proud to have had her as a guest on the show, and I can't wait to share this final interview with you all. 